Let's pray together, and then we'll read our sermon text. Father, we believe in your providence that the verses we are about to read are your word to us today. This is what you want to speak to your church. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts to be changed by your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit as, as I seek to proclaim your word. I pray that you would take your word and apply it to our church, that, that we would be more conformed into the image of Christ, the head of the body. Lord, speak to us now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Since these words are breathed out by God and come with the very authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, if you're able, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. The Holy Spirit says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. If we are going to grow, we must be united. We must be united around something. And if someone new is going to become part of us, they must unite with us around that something. And the fact is, there, there already is an us. We're already united around something the question is, what are we united around? Now, there's all sorts of things that we should not be united around. Some of them would be attractive to new people. Look, a church full of hunters. These are my people. Oh, a church full of artists. I could fit in there. A church full of people my age. That's the place for me. There's a flip side to that as well. There are also things that we could be united around that would keep people from joining our church. That church is all people who have known each other for 10 years or more. I can't fit in there. That church is all people who homeschool their kids. I don't belong there. That church is all young people I can't relate. My burden for our church is that we would be a church where 
any Christian can feel at home. Can I share something with you? Um, I, I, I tell you, I, I've struggled with whether or not I should say what I'm about to say. But it's ultimately, I think, important for us to consider because I want us to hear the message of God's word to us today. Not as hypothetical or theoretical, but, but as, as real and relevant. And so I, I pray that you'll trust my heart in this and take this for what it is. I've, had a, I've, I've heard from a number of people who have visited our church and who have decided not to join. And a common theme among those people is that they say they struggle to find community here. Now, I know that that has not been everybody's experience. But I've heard this from not just one, or from, but from several people, from, from different ages, from different backgrounds. And as we think about that, you know, it, it may be that some of those people are, are looking for a church that is united around the wrong thing. And in that case, hey, we, we just leave that to the Lord to work on their hearts with that. I think it's worth asking, what if a genuine Christian is looking for Christian community? And they don't feel like they can fit in in our church because what they find are, are pockets of people who are united, but united around something other than the gospel. Now, by God's grace, I, I believe we are a church that is friendly to visitors. I, I believe we welcome guests into our worship gatherings with warmth and kindness. But if we are going to grow as a church, we need to, we need to think beyond just giving a warm welcome to visitors. We need to be a church where any Christian can feel at home because what they find here is a group of Christians united around nothing but the gospel of Jesus. And so from Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 today, here, here's my charge to us. Let the gospel hold us together. Let the gospel hold us together. Not common experiences or common interests or anything else. Let the gospel be what defines us as us. I believe this is what we all want. I believe this is what we all strive for. So let's consider the truth of God's word and let's consider what would it look like for us to press deeper in to being a church that lets the gospel be what holds us together. A church that lets the gospel define us as us. I see in this passage two practical ways to let the gospel hold us together. First, we must cultivate gospel unity together. And second, we must cherish the gospel that unites us. 
First of all, cultivate gospel unity together. Cultivate gospel unity together. Paul begins this chapter with a passionate plea. He says to the Ephesians, I urge you. He makes the strongest case he can in these verses. His exhortation is based on God's salvation. He says, I therefore urge you. And that word therefore connects this verse back to the previous three chapters of Ephesians. For three chapters, Paul has been basking in the beauty of what God has done to save sinners. Though we were dead in sin, God made us alive together with Christ. Though we were far from God, we have been reconciled to God. And all those who have been reconciled to God have been reconciled to one another in Christ. So it's in light of all these amazing things that God has done, therefore, Paul gives his exhortation. And in case you question if Paul really believes what he is saying here, he reminds us of just how much skin he has in the game. Who is this urging the Ephesians? A prisoner for the Lord. The book of Acts records how Paul was arrested in Jerusalem for preaching the gospel. Ultimately, he ended up in prison in Rome, and it was from there that he wrote this letter. Paul so believes the gospel that he is writing about that he is willing to be imprisoned. He is willing even to give his life for what he is writing. So, what is this gospel-based exhortation worth dying for? Well, he says in verse 1, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of of the calling to which you have been called. If we have been saved, God has called us out of death and into eternal life. And Paul says that if you have been called out of the grave, you should walk worthy of that calling. If God has raised you from the dead, you should live out your resurrection life. What does a life worthy of our calling look like? Well, in one sense, everything Paul teaches in chapters 4 through 6 is a picture of a worthy walk. But he describes, uh, or he begins describing a worthy walk in verses 2 and 3. In these verses, Paul describes two ways that we can cultivate gospel unity together. He calls us to cultivate gospel virtues, and he calls us to cultivate gospel reflexes. If we are going to cultivate gospel unity together, first, we must cultivate gospel virtues. Cultivate gospel virtues. And the first gospel virtue Paul calls us to cultivate is humility. Humility. Humility is counting others as more significant than yourself. The opposite of humility is pride, and pride is a unity killer. Pride is treating yourself as more important than others. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean walking around thinking I'm better than everyone else. Pride can just be doing what is best for me without considering others. Within a local church, pride can look like How can the church make me feel comfortable instead of looking for how I can build up the church? But there's also a sinful form of humility. 
The word translated humility here in Ephesians 4 is the same word Paul uses in Colossians 2, which is translated asceticism. And asceticism looks for virtue in being self-deprecating. Asceticism is when you deprive yourself of something that's good, but not because it actually benefits anybody. It's making yourself low just to feel good about yourself. But this type of humility is really just pride. It's not about God. It's not about others. It's about you. And it tricks you into thinking you're being humble, but it doesn't actually contribute to the unity of the body. True humility is focused on exalting God and preferring others. True humility isn't focused on self. It's been rightly said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility looks for ways to build up others, even if it costs me something. Humility chooses not just to huddle with people who make me feel comfortable, but to go out of my way to make those who are new to our body feel like they belong as much as every other member of the body. Humility is willing to give up my preferences, even to give up parts of my ministry role in order to make space for others to serve and use their gifts. And this kind of humility builds unity. If we're going to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, we must walk with all humility. The second gospel virtue Paul calls us to cultivate is gentleness. Gentleness or meekness is very similar to humility. I heard one pastor define gentleness as power under control. On the one hand, gentleness is not brutal, but on the other hand, gentleness is not weak either. Aristotle actually defined gentleness this way. Imagine a person over here who is angry at everybody and everything all the time, and imagine over here there is somebody who is never angry at anything. Right in the middle of those two extremes, you'll find gentleness. On either side of gentleness are two unity killers, harshness and passivity. Harshness is overly critical of opinions I don't agree with, but passivity never stands up for the truth. Harshness condemns those who struggle with sin, but passivity tolerates sin. True gentleness is power under control. A person who is gentle is not brutal, but he's not weak. A person who is gentle advocates for sound doctrine humbly and graciously. A person who is gentle is empathetic towards sinners, but while still taking sin seriously. Jesus described himself as gentle and lowly in heart. And so this is the heart that he calls us to demonstrate as his body. If we are going to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, we must walk with all gentleness. The third gospel virtue Paul calls us to cultivate is patience. Patience is resting in God's timing instead of insisting on my timing. Patience is especially important in how we respond to other people's problems. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, 
be patient with them all. Whether a brother or sister is sinning or suffering or struggling, what they always need, no matter what, is patience. You know, we often want the Christians around us to be sanctified completely right now. Or at least we want them to be as sanctified as I am. But patience recognizes that God is saving your brothers and sisters in the same way that he's sanctifying you. Progressively, gradually, one degree of glory to another, not all at once. Impatience is a unity killer. Impatience corrects another person immediately instead of giving them a chance to learn on their own. Impatience is quick to make someone who sins against me pay for their sin instead of waiting for them to repent and ask for forgiveness. Impatience sees a person in sin and makes a permanent judgment about who they are, writing them off as unchangeable. Impatience is a unity killer. But patience builds unity. Patience is willing to see ten problems, but only focus on one at a time. Patience remembers how long it took the Lord to bring me to where I am and is willing to wait for him to bring someone else there as well. So humility, gentleness, patience, these are gospel virtues that we must cultivate if we are going to cultivate gospel unity. Second, if we are going to cultivate gospel unity together, we must cultivate gospel reflexes. Gospel reflexes. And the first gospel reflex Paul calls us to cultivate is bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another means sticking with someone until you reach God's purpose, not just until you get tired. When a relationship is difficult, our sinful uh, reflex is to give up. But Paul says a gospel reflex will want to endure with that person. Bearing with one another involves embracing differences. You know, the body of Christ is diverse. In the, in the new heaven and new earth, there will be a countless multitude from every nation, tribe, people, language, all worshiping God together. But even in a church like ours, living in the same place, people speaking the same language, we still have different giftings, different backgrounds, different education levels, different life stages. The differences are many. But bearing with one another in love means we don't let these differences divide us. Part of loving one another means when I identify a difference between us, my reflex is not to move further away from you. Instead, love means when I identify a difference between us, my reflex is to press further into the relationship. Bearing with one another in love means learning even to appreciate our differences. The person who comes from a, a rural background needs to learn the value of someone that grew up in an urban or suburban environment. A person who's more logical needs to learn the value that comes from someone who is more emotional. A person who connects best through conversation needs to learn the value of getting up and doing something with a person who connects best through a shared experience. Bearing with one another says, I am willing to be uncomfortable 
if it means showing you love and becoming more one together. Bearing with one another in love means being willing to put in the time to develop new relationships. You know, as a church, like I said, we're regularly welcoming new people into our church family. Sometimes we baptize new believers and bring them into our church that way. Other times, we, uh, other times people move here who are previously part of another church and become members here. And whether you are the new person or the person who's been here, developing new relationships is hard. You know, it's one thing to visit a worship service a couple of times. It's another thing to try and invest your life in a community that requires time and dedication. It's one thing to greet a first-time guest. It's another thing to welcome them into your family. That requires even rethinking who your family members are. It means changing your instincts about who are your go-to people for fellowship and service. But bearing with one another means we are willing to endure the challenge of building new relationships for the sake of the love that God calls his people to. If we're going to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, we must bear with one another in love. The second gospel reflex Paul calls us to cultivate is to strive to guard unity. He says that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Really, unity is the goal of all the other things that Paul has been commanding here. Humility contributes to unity. Gentleness uh, uh, contributes to unity. Patience contributes to unity. Bearing with one another in love contributes to unity. The emphasis in this command is on being zealous about guarding unity. This is critical. Our reflex must be that protecting our unity is urgent. The temptation is to say that we want unity, but to have a reflex of unresponsiveness or disunity. It's easy to say we're united around the gospel, but when we see disunity, are we zealous to mend it? When Christians struggle to unite with us, are we eager to uncover what we may be wrongfully united around, even if we don't realize it? The reflex that God wants us to develop is a reflex to maintain gospel unity through the bond of peace. Now, peace is not something that happens by accident. Paul says in Romans 14, 19, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Peace must be pursued. That means when we see a unity killer like pride or harshness or impatience, We need to weed it out. We need to repent of our own sins. And we need to encourage one another toward repentance in those areas. It also means that when we experience division or conflict within our church, we must be zealous to pursue reconciliation. A church cannot thrive when there is unforgiven sins among its members. Resentment and bitterness are unity killers. 
We must be eager to follow Jesus' instructions in Matthew 18. When a brother or sister sins, go to them privately and address it. If a person refuses to listen, bring in a couple more people to pursue peace together. If necessary, the whole church is called to be peacemakers. Whatever it takes, we must have as our reflex an eagerness to pursue peace. If we are going to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, we must strive to guard unity. Again, the call of these first three verses is to cultivate gospel unity together. We do that by cultivating gospel virtues of humility and gentleness and patience. We do that by cultivating gospel reflexes of bearing with one another and striving to guard unity. And this is the first practical way to let the gospel hold us together. We cultivate gospel unity together. But second, we must cherish the gospel that unites us. Cherish the gospel that unites us. You know, Paul writes this passage in two sections. In verses 1 through 3, he instructs his readers to do something. But in verses 4 through 6, Paul states facts. And the facts in the second section are the basis for the instructions of the first section. The heart of the instruction of verses 1 through 3 is to cultivate gospel unity. But we are not called to create our unity. Did you notice in verse 3 that Paul says we maintain the unity of the Spirit? We are not capable of creating unity within the church on our own. Just look at the world around us. Everybody's always talking about unity. Everyone's talking about what a shame it is that everyone's so divided. But that's the best that we can do on our own as fallen humans. Our only hope for unity together with other humans is if God creates the unity. And he has in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So after Paul calls his readers to maintain unity, he lists seven aspects of the gospel which are the basis of our unity. So let's meditate on this gospel together and may these gospel truths move us to let the gospel hold us together. First, Paul says in verse 4, there is one body. One body. There is one body of Christ. The capital C church, if you will. The church did not make itself the body of Christ. We don't even make ourselves a local church. God is the one who makes us one body. Paul's actually already written about this in this letter. Turn back with me to Ephesians 2. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2 about division between Jews and Gentiles. Now, you can't get more divided than Jews and Gentiles. Jews were insiders. The Jews were the ones that God promised inheritance and blessing and salvation and a kingdom. God set apart the Jews for himself. The Gentiles were outsiders. When God called the Jews to be set apart, it was the Gentiles they were supposed to be set apart from. So many of the failures of Israel throughout history were because they were too intermingled with the Gentiles. In Ephesians 2.12, Paul reminded the Gentiles in this church that they were once separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But Jesus changed everything. Jesus has made a way, in the words of Ephesians 2.16, to reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus does not reconcile each one of us different ways. He made one way to be reconciled to God. And so when we are reconciled to God, we are reconciled together. If the cross is strong enough to unite Jews and Gentiles into one body, then it is strong enough to unite insiders and outsiders in our church too. There is only one body, and we are called to live as one body within our local church. I want you to think about our member list. You might even have it in your Bible, and you can take it out and look at it, but in any case, think about the members of our church, the names who are on that list. And I want you to consider this. There is only one Rocky Point. There is not old Rocky Point and new Rocky Point. There is not college Rocky Point and adult Rocky Point. There is not homeschool Rocky Point and public school Rocky Point. There is not married Rocky Point and single Rocky Point. There is one body. So let that hold us together. Second, Paul says in Ephesians 4, 4, there is one spirit, one spirit. We can have unity together as worshipers of God because there is one Holy Spirit through whom we worship. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 18, through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And in Ephesians 2.22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. There is only one way to worship God, and it's through the Holy Spirit. Now, we all have worship preferences. Some people prefer singing. Some people prefer preaching. Something, some people like things more traditional, some more modern. But ultimately, there is only one way to worship God. And if you are in Christ, we all have access to God by the one Spirit. We are God's temple because the Holy Spirit has made us God's temple. So whatever our worship preferences may be, what we have in common is that we all worship God through the same Holy Spirit. There is one Spirit. So let that hold us together. Third, there is one hope. Paul says in Ephesians 4 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. So just as there is one body and one spirit, so believers have one hope. For Christians, our hope is about how Jesus will fulfill all of God's promises to his people. We've seen many aspects of our hope in Revelation. The return of Christ, the resurrection from the dead, the judgment of evil, the salvation of God's people, eternal life with God forever. 
And, and notice that this one hope belongs to our call. When Jesus called us as his disciples, he didn't just call us only to start. He didn't say, all right, you can try to be my disciple. I'm not sure how this is going to end. We'll just see how it goes. No, he called us to a hope. He called us to eternal life. This is his promise and his assurance for all his people. Jesus said in John 6, 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. If we are in Christ, we all have one hope. We are going to be united in the same new heaven and new earth together. So we can be united as a body of Christ on earth today. There is one hope. So let that hold us together. Fourth, Paul says in Ephesians 4, 5, there is one Lord. One Lord. There is only one Lord Jesus Christ. And no one has Jesus as their Savior who does not also have him as their Lord. Paul says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. All Christians are disciples of Jesus, following the one Lord Jesus. If we all follow the same Lord Jesus, then we will all be walking in the same direction. We will all be united. If we're not walking in the same direction, we need to ask, is it because one of us is not following the way of Jesus? Maybe we're not united because one of us is walking in the way of bitterness and unforgiveness. Maybe we're not united because one of us is walking in the way of worldly philosophy and false doctrine. Maybe we're not united because one of us wants to be their own Lord. But there is only one Lord. And if we do all follow Him as Lord, we can be united together. We might disagree about the finer points of theology we might disagree about practical ministry approaches, but if we all bow to Jesus as Lord, we can be united together. There is one Lord. So let that hold us together. Fifth, Paul says in Ephesians 4, 5, there is one faith. One faith. This is what Jude 3 refers to as the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The one faith is those doctrines that Christians must believe. We cannot have unity in the church without unity around doctrine. Now, again, there are finer points of doctrine that we can disagree about and still be united, but there are some things that we must agree on if we're going to be united. Some people you know, suggest that any focus on theology or doctrine is divisive, but that couldn't be any further from the truth. We can't have Christian unity without having unity around the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And thankfully, we don't have to wonder what this faith is. It's been delivered to us in the scriptures. Generations of Christians have preserved it. And as Paul will go on in Ephesians 4.13 to explain, Jesus has given leaders to his church in order to help the church attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We can be united in the sound doctrine Jesus has entrusted, with us, entrusted us with. 
There is one faith. So let that hold us together. Sixth, Paul says in verse 5, there is one baptism. We all entered the one body because of the one baptism of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Some of us came to Christ as children. Some of us came to Christ later in life. Some of us were uh, responding to an altar call. Some of us prayed in the parking lot of a Ross dress for less. Some of us had scandalous or criminal lifestyles that we were living in before trusting in Christ. Some of us were living praiseworthy and religious lifestyles before trusting in Christ. But no matter what happened on the outside, the only reason that we are part of the body today is that the Holy Spirit did a work inside us to cause us to be born again through the one baptism. Our stories may seem different, but we really all have the same story. Twas blind, but now I see. There is one baptism. Let that hold us together. Seventh and finally, Paul says in verse 6, there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. In Ephesians 1.5, Paul writes about this one God and Father and says, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. If we have trusted in Christ, we have been adopted by God. The one God and Father is our Father. And if we all have the same Father, then we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. Our God has united us together by adopting us into one family. Furthermore, Paul says this one God is over all and through all and in all. He's, he's over all. We are united around the sovereignty of God. He's through all. We're united in that the same God is at work through each of our lives. He is in all. We are united in that the one God actually dwells inside us through the work of the Holy Spirit. There is one God. So let that hold us together. The call of verses 4 through 6 is to cherish the gospel that unites us. And it is in light of who God is and what he has done that we can be one as a church. If we cherish these gospel truths and we cultivate the gospel values and reflexes and virtues that these truths lead us to, then we will experience gospel unity. I can see a day when any Christian feels at home at our church. I can see a day when new people come into our church and they say, what holds these people together? Isn't their history or their common interests? What holds these people together is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because I've been changed by that same gospel, I can belong here. 
I can see a day when we look around our church and we see a culture of preferring others, a culture that's gentle and lowly toward sinners, a culture of investing in new relationships and sticking with people for the long haul, a culture of celebrating our different strengths and gifts, a culture that can't sleep until reconciliation has occurred. I can see a day when the gospel holds us together so much that it is infectious to those who see us. And by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, that day can be today. Let's pray together. Father, you are the one God who sent your one and only Son to die for sinners like us, to be our Lord, to send the one Spirit, to change our hearts through the one baptism, to bring us into fellowship of the one body, to give us the one hope. Lord, I pray that we would love your good news so much that we would want to walk worthy of your call. God, I think about our church and I think of how generous you have been with your grace. Lord, the, the incredible ways that you have grown our church, the incredible ways you've given grace for our church to be a, a place of hospitality and love, of friendship and encouragement. Lord, you have been so kind to our church. You have done so many great things here. And Lord, what we want is to go deeper into your gospel, to grow in our walk, to cherish the gospel more, and to cultivate gospel unity more. Lord, would we not be content only to look back on what you've done in the past? May we not be content only to rest in what you've given us in the present. Lord, would we be eager to walk into the future and what you have for us as your church? Would we be eager to celebrate the gospel together and to celebrate the gospel with new believers and new members of our church? Would we be eager to bring new believers, new brothers and sisters into the fellowship that has meant so much to us, the fellowship that has been a lifeline for us in times of trouble. Lord, would, would we be so moved by your grace to us in Christ and your grace to us through this church, Lord, that we would overflow in wanting as many people to experience as deep of unity with your body as possible. 
Lord, you have already done everything necessary to make us united. So, Lord, may we live in the good of what you have done in Christ. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together and respond to the word of God that we've just heard.